Good morning, Outlook family. Good to see everyone this morning. I hope you're doing well. I have a question for you. Do you remember litmus paper or pH paper? Maybe you have a job in which you work with that all the time, or maybe you're like me and you haven't touched it since high school chemistry class, or maybe you're in high school and you've, you're in it right now. I don't know, but here's a little bit about litmus paper. As soon as it lands on an object, what's inside it, what it's made of, the character of its composition, in this case, a level of its acidity, <clears throat> is immediately revealed, right? In fact, we even have a phrase we just call, if something happens and, man, immediately you, you find out what's going on inside, uh, that's a litmus test, right? We use that phrase in lots of different ways. There are people and events and truths that serve this purpose in us, whether we sometimes want them to or not, right? Sometimes uh, things happen and they reveal I've got a certain level of acidity in me. Am I the only one? Right. No, I hope not, right? Things happen. We're unexpectedly in the same room with a certain person. Or a reality lands on us that we've spent a lot of time suppressing. And we may not have a chemical reaction, although it can feel pretty close to it. We have a spiritual, mental, uh, emotional one. And what we're really about, good or not so good, mm, it comes out. That is a litmus test. And the parable that we've been letting Jesus tell us afresh these last few weeks does exactly this in a masterful way. And the more deeply we look into this parable, the more we let it land on us and touch us, the more fully and clearly we see ourselves and all we are composed of. Let's, uh, let's just take a second and remember who is listening uh, to this story that we've been spending this time in and how they may have reacted to the story, the reaction that would come from them as it landed on them. If you remember, we have the religious leaders, the insiders, who would have loved the parable to end with the younger son sitting, uh, being down and out, sitting in the pig pen during a famine, getting exactly what he deserved. But the outcasts that Jesus was hanging out with, they loved, they would have thoroughly enjoyed hearing about the father's embrace and that happily ever after that story, that would have been perfect. But Jesus was not finished with the story, even though this is what we've experienced in our telling of it so far this month. And they aren't the only ones listening. We're listening too. And what happens next and how it lands on us may be the most insightful, telling, revealing, convicting part of the whole story. So if you haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks and this story is new to you, let's quickly review. Jesus begins this story by saying a father had two sons. The younger son, in blatant disrespect, demands his inheritance way early and then, uh, from the father and then wildly squanders it all. He hits rock bottom, comes to his senses, heads home, ready to repent of his foolishness. As he's journeying homeward, his father sees him, even from a distance, runs to meet him, embraces him with forgiveness, restores him fully to the family, even throwing a party to celebrate. But remember, this father had two sons. And so the second son, the older son, hasn't had his seen yet. That is, until now. Here we go. We're in Luke 15, page 714. If you grabbed a Bible from the Bible carts in the back or in the commons, 
You're always feel free. If you don't own an easy-to-read copy of the Bible, write your name in the front of one of those and take it home with you to keep. Page 714, Luke 15, Jesus continues this story. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father says, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together. Father, with these words, your words to us open before us, we also pray, God, our hearts and our minds would be open before you. Holy Spirit, do your work, a work I could never do, a work we can't manufacture, but a work you're expert at performing, and that is translating these truths into exactly what every heart needs to hear this morning. So we trust you to do that, we rely on you, and we give these next few minutes to you, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, so we're going to see three things here in the older brother. Let's not turn our attention away from him until we at least try to see if some of what we notice in him might also exist in ourselves too. To let the litmus test of this scene tell us something about what's inside us, which is what God's word is so very good at doing. So the first thing we see about the older son is he's, he's living in a lot of self importance. At this moment in the story, it says that he gets angry and refuses to go into the party. A litmus test event is definitely happening for sure in the life of this man, the older son. His little brother is home and he is angry about what he's taking in. The crowd, the music, the dancing, the aroma of the feast, likely the laughter. And he's wondering to himself, where's the anger? Where's the disgust? And what I would probably relish most if I were him, the punishment, right, for this younger brother. If grace were what the litmus test was looking for, this son is registering zero. And this reminds us, our initial reactions, we're watching his initial reaction, they can teach us a lot about ourselves if we pay attention. This younger son has none of the compassion, the empathy, the fellow feeling of the father, as Justin so deftly explained last Sunday. Wasn't that a great sermon last Sunday from Justin about the father? I really appreciated all that he brought to bear on that subject. This older son is doing something that would have been especially hard for Jesus' initial hearers to comprehend. He refused to go in to the feast. First, in that culture, it's a grave insult to, to refuse hospitality. It is scandalous to see this otherwise dutiful son standing outside saying, I'm not going in there. 
He's dishonoring his father in his own way. He's showing us there's more than one way to disrespect the father. The younger son had his way, but the older son is finding his own way as well. Secondly, to be outside the feast, that is a concept that Jesus used and his listeners would have understood. More than once, Jesus describes the kingdom of God as one kind of celebration or another, whether that's a wedding feast or a large banquet. And whenever Jesus refers to it in that way, just about the worst thing would be to find yourself outside the party. No one hears Jesus talk about this and think, that's where I want to be. That's the last place we want to be. And yet that is exactly what this older son is choosing to do, where he's choosing to be. So what happens? His father goes out and pleads with him. Again, the father is breaking propriety, so to speak. He, he does not have any, uh, any um, need for convention here. What he knows is that he loves his son, and his son is missing out. So he goes and pleads with the younger son, just as the father ran or to the older son, just as he ran to the younger son, Justin talked about last week, in what would have been a sign of totally throwing caution to the wind. No one would have seen a respectable older man burying his legs, lifting up his robe so he can take off down the path. But that's exactly what the father does. He doesn't care about how he looks. He only wants to love his sons fully. And so even now, he's standing outside pleading with this older son. Forget self-respect. Forget what uh, so-called, what's considered expected or appropriate. He is being driven by love. And what is the older son doing but exhibiting his own kind of self-centeredness? There was no seeing things from his brother's perspective or his father's perspective. In this son's mind, he was the star in the center of the story, which, of course, he's quickly making the case. Think of how the story could have ended at this moment had the older son made a different choice. There he is, seeing his brother, finally, safe and sound, and then touched by the joy on his dear father's face. He walks in and raises the glass and enjoys the celebration. That would have been a great way for this story to end. Instead, no, he would have his scene. He would not go in, enter in, and enjoy, as Justin put put it last week, the abundant, nourishing, life-giving table of grace the father had provided. And so the the older son begins to explain why. And we move from self-importance into self-righteousness. He answers the father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Friends, there aren't too many sadder words recorded than these. Because at this moment, the father is hearing exactly what this son thinks their relationship is all about. Slaving and obeying. Defining my relationship with you, father, in terms of my service to your work and my adherence to your word. That's it. That's what this whole thing has been about to me. Now, as I hear those words, and if I'll pause and reflect, I wonder, does God ever pick that up from me? God, look what I did. Or see how I've served. Or did you catch that temptation I avoided? And have you noticed my increasing humility? I'm pretty proud of that. right? 
What's he say to him? Look, all these years I've been slaving, never disobeying. I think these words would have, already bro- would have broken the father's already wounded heart. I wonder if the father would feel, is that what you thought we were doing? Is that what you thought this was all about, just obeying my rules or doing my work? I don't want to ever make God, my father, feel that way, or at least I don't want to ever make him feel that way again, because I'm guessing at some point I have, probably more than once. What can this show us? It shows us that even when we have a sincere desire to please out of love, it can quickly become a drive just to receive reward. If we're not paying attention to our own hearts, our motivations, if we're not making the effort to stay near the Father's heart, cultivating a relationship with Him, then this whole thing can end up just getting reduced to rules and to work, to labor. Had this son ever sat down with his father while his brother was gone and heard the sadness in his father's voice? Did he have any appreciation for the full dynamic of the situation? What may have driven his brother to make the decisions that he made? How the father is feeling and the tragicness of the whole thing? Or was he calculating the financial cost, how much this has already set the family back? Or maybe even more likely, just tallying up how much better he is than his good-for-nothing brother. Better with every passing month or year, as a matter of fact. His faithfulness and goodness increasingly apparent to all. His stock rising with every loss his competitor suffered. This is the way self-righteousness sees the world, sees others. That when you blow it, I look better. My heart doesn't break for your, for your travesty, for, for, your, for your trial. No, instead, I think, well, look what I avoided. I bet that makes me look pretty good next to them. That's self-righteousness. That's the older brother for sure, and it can be any of us. Peter Scazzaro writes about this in his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, this parable. And he says, when I'm not intentional and purposeful, two really key words, about embracing my weakness and vulnerability, every day I become the older son. Can we relate? In fact, instead of our vulnerability, as Cazero puts it, we embrace our capability, or at least we try to. Look at me. I'm right. I'm good. I'm correct. I'm reliable. And those of us who've been following Jesus for a while, those of us who uh, consider ourselves believers in Jesus and are happy to be able to say so, it is not hard to find ourselves becoming, quote, good church people who then have, for a long, long time, perhaps not prayed, not forgiven, not really, not fully, not loved someone who might be kind of difficult to love, but instead staying squarely in our comfort zone, perhaps secure in our rightness. And in the end, we find ourselves standing outside the party and convinced we're just where we're supposed to be, doing just what we're supposed to do. And all the while, the Father is pleading pleading for us to just come in. His older son, though, isn't finished, and he moves to self-pity. He says, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends, but this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. He says, this isn't fair. 
I deserve more, and certainly more than so-and-so. You ever been there? Such pettiness, and we can call it that, if we'll admit it, it's inevitable when it comes to our very human relationships and goings-on. There's not a one of us who isn't guilty of it at some point or another. But what I want to remind us of this morning here in church together with our Bibles open is all of that pettiness melts away when we get close to the grace of God, which is exactly what we're seeing the Father in the story exhibit, right? When we get close to grace, all of that starts to burn off. Any talk of deservedness, who deserves what, man, that vaporizes. And we begin to realize, thanks to grace, no one's getting what they deserve, and we couldn't be happier about it, amen? Now, that's certainly not where this son is, and if we're honest, it isn't always where we are either. This reminds me of another parable Jesus told. This one goes, uh, gets down to business in making the same point. If this talk of fathers and sons and hugs and hogs and all kinds of stuff like that, if it's too touchy-feely for us, this one's far more of a commercial enterprise, but it makes the same point in this parable. Jesus tells it like this, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to find workers to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius, that's a day's wages, and he sent them to work. About nine in the morning, he makes the same arrangement with others he saw standing idle in the marketplace. He goes out again at noon and then at three in the afternoon, he does the exact same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out. He still found others standing around and says to them, you go, work in my vineyard. When evening came, it says, the sun is beginning to set and the workers come to receive their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and then going to the first. The workers who were hired at about five in the afternoon came and they each received a denarius, Jesus says in this parable. So, seeing this, when those who were hired early in the morning, when they came, they expected they're going to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner, Jesus says. Those who were hired last worked only an hour. They said, you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. And it's at this moment in the parable that we meet the older son or a whole shift of older sons. Different time, different place, but a similar attitude. One nearly universal to us humans. I deserve more. This isn't fair. And it's in that moment we're foisting our pettiness and our small way of measuring onto the landowner, onto the father, onto God. And this is a mistake. It is a major miscalculation on our part of what we're dealing with here because we're talking ultimately about grace. So the parable concludes this way. But he answered one of them. This is the landowner speaking. I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have a, the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Grace is really the new math. It is its own kind of arithmetic. In Christ, we all finish we all cross the finish line of our earthly lives and receive the same eternal reward, the love of God in life with him. Some don't get more and others less. The table is set 
and the party is for everyone who will come. Back to Peter Scazzaro for a moment in the same book. He says, I know I'm falling into older son territory when I hold on to my anger rather than process it, when I find myself grumbling and complaining a lot, when I have a hard time letting go of hurts. I don't know about you, he's reading my mail right there. These are all sure signs, he says, that I am the lost older son. Add add to this the fact that when we get a decent dose of religion in us, we can easily find ourselves becoming the self-righteous older son. He's being handed an invitation to joy, and yet he will have nothing of it. Like him, we can get stuck, fixated. What about him? What about her? What they've done or not done? What about this or that or what I've never received and thought I deserved? And all this time, our father pleads. And so as we wrap up this morning, hear his words. My son, he says, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father essentially says to this sulking older son, can't you see how rich you already are? Think about it like this. When we were young, the whole goal was to throw a party when your parents weren't home, right? But now we have a parent in this life, in Christ, who's throwing the party for us and just wishes we would show up and enjoy it. A couple weeks ago, we said that the younger son displayed the trifecta of human foolishness. And last week, Justin reminded us that the father provides a trifecta of human flourishing. In this older son, we recognize in his self-importance, self-righteousness, and self-pity, a trifecta of human failure, frustration, falsehood, fear. We could go on and on, honestly the ways we fail each other and fail our father. He was angry, refuses to go into the party. He instead wants to call attention to himself. Look, all these years I've been slaving and never disobeying, yet you didn't ever even give me the things I thought I deserved or needed. He was living in the father's house and not enjoying it. It's like the worst tragedy of all, to walk with Christ and not enjoy this life that he's given us, but instead reduce it to some slaving and never disobeying. He was not letting go. He was not forgiving. He was not living in the Father's embrace, which honestly is barely living at all. He was missing it. And I suppose if there's anything I'm praying we'll all walk out of here feeling this morning is a desire to not miss it because it's so good, this life in the Father's house. The older brother had it the whole time and never understood just how rich he was. My friend Vince Antonucci wrote a book called God for the Rest of Us. And in this book, he talks about the parable and he makes this observation. Actually, he says, the older brother and his rejection of the father is more the point of Jesus' story. We feel like the story is more about the younger son. But the reason Jesus told this story, remember, was to address the objections of the religious legalists. They couldn't understand why Jesus was teaching that God was for these rebellious sinners. With the character of the older son... Jesus was trying to show them that they also had rejected God. What this reminds me is this. I can be religious and at the same time reject God. I can forget what he's all about. Love and grace, forgiveness and embracing, even while I think I'm being faithful to him. 
The father wants both sons. And in telling this parable, Jesus stands between the religious so-called experts and the profligate so-called sinners, and he says they both need grace. They both need the father's embrace. Will they accept it? We see the younger son has, but the story ends right here with this question when it comes to the older brother. Will he accept his father's invitation to a feast of joy and grace and love? We don't know. We have to let ourselves finish the story. I'd invite you to grab your bread and a cup if you got one on the way in. As every week here at Outlook, we pause to accept the invitation. We take a moment to recognize every week that there has been an invitation issued, a joyful one, to a feast. And even though this tiny piece of bread might be the smallest thing we eat uh, all week, it represents the biggest truths, the deepest wisdom and, and, and wonderful grace that we could ever imagine. Every week we pull ourselves up to that table and we say yes to that invitation. And we recognize that the love behind it costs the Son of God his life, his body broken for us. Let's take and eat together. Every week, in a sense, when you think about the older brother, we admit that we can end up, left to ourselves, draining this life of its richness and meaning. We distance ourselves from the Father's embrace. We stand with arms folded while his are wide open. We might even blame God or the church or others when ultimately, in the end, it's us who's refusing to go in. Grace is a party. Let's not stand outside, but instead, let's raise a glass to the Father and his grace and drink together. Let's pray. Lord, we do choose, even in, a, in any small way that we can, to enter in, to take our seat at the table you've set. Maybe awkwardly, maybe self-consciously, maybe we wonder, how did we end up here? And we might have that voice in our head that says we don't deserve it, but instead we choose to ignore and silence that voice, and we do it anyway. We accept your grace. We hear the voice that is your voice telling us. We're loved, we're accepted, we're forgiven, we're embraced by you. That's the voice we pay attention to. And every week we carve out some time to try to drown out every other voice, including our own, that we can hear yours tell us how much we're loved. We can't thank you enough for, for that, God, but we'll spend our whole lives trying. In Jesus' name, amen.